Welcome back to the Outview Podcast. On today's episode, I welcome my guest, Carden Wyckoff. Join our conversation as we discuss how she lives her best life at six miles per hour and the importance of advocacy work to improve the lives of those who live with disabilities. everybody welcome back to another episode of the our view podcast i am very happy to welcome my guest carden wyckoff to the episode today and uh so welcome carden thank you for joining me for this uh, great conversation tonight yeah thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it arthur you're welcome um so you and I, we met uh, a few weeks ago on the um, app Clubhouse. I've been saying that a lot for <laughs> uh, a lot of my interviews that I've been doing lately. Um, so it, it's really great to be able to connect with people who, um, you know, who are willing to share their stories of uh, living with disabilities. And uh, so I'm really grateful for you taking the time out to uh, speak with me today. <clears throat> yes, thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here and just share my story and get to know a little bit more about you as well. So, yeah. So can you just, um, to start off the episode, can you just uh, explain to people who is Carden Wyckoff? <laughs> who is Carden Wyckoff? Uh, Carden Wyckoff is a wheelchair warrior, a disability advocate uh, based in Atlanta, Georgia. And I believe in creating a more accessible world and inclusive world for people with disabilities. I'm sure just like you are. Yes. Yes, that is so, so and, true. Um, yeah, born and raised in Atlanta. Um, I have a form of muscular dystrophy and it's called FSHD, muscular dystrophy. And I was born with it and I was diagnosed about nine years old. So I have a infantile onset. I was a special snowflake that was about 10% of patients with FSHD get it as an infantile onset. And I showed symptoms as early as four and a half years old, and then just worked for those five years to figure out with the doctor and the, the researchers, what the heck was wrong with me. So um, over time, it's a muscle wasting disease. And so my skeletal muscle in my body converts to fat and that muscle just deteriorates away. And it's so skeletal muscles, uh, think about your limbs and your body. So your hands, your arms, your legs, your core, your back, um, the muscles that um, help you to breathe and hold up your neck and pick your feet up when you walk. And so over time, those muscles are just withering away and I don't really have any control over it. At this time, there's no cure. And um, so um, when after college, I started using a wheelchair full-time just because walking became really difficult. So that's a little bit about my progression. Yeah, that's, um, <clears throat> oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so that that's really um, interesting. So you said you were showing symptoms as early as, as four years old, but then it took um, another five years before you were actually diagnosed. Yeah, exactly. Just because muscular dystrophy, I was born in the 90s, mm -hmm. early 90s, and muscular dystrophy just wasn't a topic of conversation. It was fairly well known. And so doctors didn't know 
what it looked like in children. And they also didn't know to look for the type of symptoms. And I think the only representation that they had of muscular dystrophy was the Jerry's Kids, which was right. that MDA Muscular Dystrophy Association telethon back in, I think the eighties, um, mm -hmm. which my father grew up watching. And you see the adults with muscular dystrophy and, and they're in wheelchairs and they're very severely disabled. But for me as a child, I was really a competitive sports player. I played soccer, basketball, softball, and I ran track through high school. Um, not on the track team, but I just ran for fun. Mm -hmm. I was one of those kind of crazy people that enjoyed running <laughs> for fun. <laughs> and, um, but it was kind of like, as I was competing in the sports, I couldn't be the strongest and the fastest and the number one player on the team. And I couldn't throw the ball far enough or shoot the ball high enough in basketball. I really struggled at free throws because I couldn't use my upper body my muscles in my, in my arms and in my shoulders to really propel that basketball forward and up into the air. That was a really difficult motion for me to do. Mm -hmm. And so I would usually fall short in the free throws. And that was kind of, um, something that my coaches kind of just watched very closely. And also I think ended up telling my parents about it. You know, it looks like she's having some trouble throwing the ball as hard and as, as far as it needs to go. And I remember when I transitioned from like that little league to the high school league and the height of the basketball post changed about oh, yeah. I don't know, three or four feet. And mm -hmm. I just remember that difference in height. I just, I like literally couldn't make any free throw. Right. And so, you know, that's when I was in when I was 11 or 12. And so up until about 14, that's kind of when I stopped playing sports mm -hmm. because it just became too difficult to run, to uh, just throw the ball, to do those arm motions and the bat swings and stuff. So that's kind of where that progression was. And for me, symptoms showed up in my face and in my upper body. So, and then in my shoulder. So I showed scapular winging. It was very mild when I was a child and it's mm -hmm. gotten progressed over time as an adult, just cause due to the progression of the muscle wasting. And so it was things like having trouble blowing up birthday candles and whistling. You know, I, I could try, but I didn't do a very good job at it. And I would kind of just like spit at the birthday candles and I'm silly doing it. And uh, the other thing was my eyelids wouldn't fully close at night. And so when my mom would come in at night to tuck me in or kiss me goodnight, if I had already gone to sleep, it was like, as if I was, I, I looked like I was awake when I wasn't because the whites of my eyelids would show. Oh, wow. And so that was kind of another red flag that my mom really paid attention to and her being an, an amazing mother and also a helicopter mom, <laughs> she was <laughs> able to just do lots of research and talk with the doctors and say, you know, this is at the time she was substituting at, in elementary school. So she saw a lot of kids. She was around a lot of kids and it, I seemed a little bit different, um, but it was very difficult to pinpoint. We uh, met up with a researcher and clinician inside of Emory University, and she was about the only one who had studied FSHD in her 
postdoctorate or whatnot. And she took one look at me and said, I know exactly what you have, but we'd like to confirm that. And we were sent up to Rochester, New York. And so I'm, I'm based in Atlanta (laughs) and uh, flew up to Rochester, New York to be diagnosed essentially. And the doctors said immediately, we know exactly what you have. And then we had the blood work to confirm that. And all of my family members also were tested, my immediate family members, and none of them were carriers and they don't have it as well. So I'm referred to as a spontaneous. So it happened um, in uh, during when I was being conceived in utero. So spontaneous de novo mutation. Wow. <clears throat> I think one of the, the things that you mentioned that is really important is, um, you know, you said you grew up in the 90s and the, um, the example that was used for uh, muscular dystrophy was the Jerry's kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so therefore it's like you didn't show those symptoms that people were used to seeing. So it, exactly. you know, it made it difficult for them to say what, you know, what you had because you didn't, uh, you weren't exhibiting any of those other, those symptoms that people were used to seeing. So, um, you know, so that I'm glad you uh, shared that, that story of how it came to be that you were uh, properly diagnosed. It's really crazy that it took, um, you know, took so long for that to occur though. It's um, yeah, definitely unfortunate with the times, right. It just right. happened to be that it just, no one knew about it, but now my friends who uh, completed medical school and they're in the residency program while they were doing their medical school, um, all their presentations and their coursework, they talk about FSHD muscular dystrophy and they talk about Duchenne's and they talk about SMA and they talk about Becker's and all these different types of muscular dystrophies now. So students that are getting training now, they <laughs> are equipped with the knowledge to look for these symptoms. They may not know you know, every single symptom of every single type of muscular dystrophy, but there's definitely a common theme in them all is the uh, not being able to do certain functions and in comparison to a quote, non-disabled child who uh, functions and has that uh, high, has a high range of motion. Right. So we're seeing a lot, uh, much better representation in early childhood diagnosis. And so I'm really thankful for that. And there's also incredible amount of research and awareness. And now everything you can Google so easily back in the nineties, like the internet really wasn't a thing. And so, (laughs) I mean, nowadays you could really just Google like why can't I blow out my birthday candles? And I'm sure muscular dystrophy will pop up. Like it's, yes. it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's great. The, uh, the research that has been done, the technology, the medical mm-hmm. advances that have taken place, uh, even from when I was born 40 years ago, um, you know, my, my parents, they, they were told I wasn't expected to live past the age of 15. And it goes mm-hmm. back to what you were saying too, it's although spina bifida is is nothing new, they just still at that time they didn't have um, the knowledge to really know what was happening. And uh, my parents didn't know I had spina bifida until I was born. Now they can see it on a three D ultrasound. So yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, it's very incredible, and it's great the research um, that has been done. They can also do the fetal surgery 
uh, mm-hmm. before the baby is born to close the hole in the back of a child who has spina bifida. Oh, wow. That's yeah. Amazing. So it's, you know, all of the things that weren't an option 40 years ago. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm definitely hopeful that they are, uh, you know, sharing more positive uh, messages with the parents now that, that their child will have a, uh, you know, a good life and, and a, a productive life uh, with, you know, spina bifida and other disabilities as well, just because, yeah. of the way things are constantly improving, which is, um, you know, so, so great to hear. And I, you know, I'm excited every time I see stories that, uh, that show the improvements that are being made. Yeah. So it, it's just really interesting, um, you know, just because of the, the things that they tell our parents and, and, mm-hmm. you know, the things that they tell us growing up of what we would una- be unable to do and just how we have, uh, you know, pushed through it. And as you called yourself a warrior and just, you know, just <laughs> got through a, a bunch of things and, and a bunch of uh, the obstacles and challenges. I think that's really, uh, really impressive for, uh, for all of us who live with disabilities. I think it's just, um, you know, something yeah. that we, we deserve to uh, applaud ourselves for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially growing up, I was the only one in my immediate family. And then uh, it, it doesn't skip gener- the type of muscular dystrophy that I have. It doesn't skip generations. So it's a 50% autosomal dominant. So you would be a carrier or you would pass it on to your, uh, to your, um, your offspring. Mm-hmm. And also, um, so, so my grand, that means that my grandparents didn't have it on both sides. Um, so it just happened spontaneously because my mom and dad aren't carriers either. Wow. And so having a very large extended family, you know, social support was really critical and, and is highly valued in my family. And so having such an amazing family to be supportive of my journey and to be there supportive, um, just, uh, to help out is also been really helpful. Um, in addition, at times I think it was very isolating and sometimes still is today. And the reason for that is because growing up, no one in my community had muscular dystrophy that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. And, and that's elementary, middle and high school, at least that I, in my network that I was friends with and growing up as a child, I, I don't think I was really poked fun of until later in high school when walking started becoming more difficult. And so I started having a gait and I waddled when I walked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started about, it started freshman year of high school, but it started getting worse about junior and senior year of high school. And I think people, and I uh, started getting some lordosis. And so that's kind of a sway back is what the common term is. Mm-hmm. And so when I walked, I would lean, I would lean back and then propel my legs forward And oftentimes, uh, so what that meant is that my stomach would protrude out. And so it looked like I was, I could be seen as pregnant, but I'm a very Uh tall and lean person Uh (laughs) and it was not pregnant. And so I think out in public, I would get all the time, oh, when is your baby due? Or I would get weird looks. And I knew that that's either they were looking at me weird because I walked differently or because they knew that. I looked pregnant, even though I wasn't. Um, and also if you've ever faced this when I was in high school, 
I was driving and I got the accessible parking pass and a license plate. And I got so many bad looks because I was still walking, but not very well. Mm-hmm. I definitely couldn't walk long distances with ease. And people would come up to me and say, you know, that's only for wheelchair users or that's only for disabled people. And it's like, well, not everyone has necessarily a visible disability right. is allowed to get that parking. Yeah, it's really um, the, the great thing. Another great thing that you just said was the the support, the network of support that you had. It's it's very it's a, been a very common theme in my um, in my conversations I've had with people on the podcast, where um, you know the family support and the the network of people, extended family support, has been uh, very key to uh, their you know their their success and and their um, just being able to get through um, get through life and mm-hmm. also very similar to what you said as well. I was the only person in my family of, um, uh, you know, on my mom and dad's side, everybody, nobody else had a disability like, like mine. And, um, even in my, you know, my network of friends and, and from elementary school through high school and college, even I wasn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't around people who had disabilities. Um, and it's, you know, so, so it was really, it was a good thing and a, a not so good thing. It was good in a way that I was, um, thankfully I, I fit into a lot of different social groups in high school. So I was able to share my story and share my experience. And a lot of people had interactions with me in that way so that it wasn't, um, it wasn't too much of a big deal about me using a wheelchair. Uh, I can remember, <laughs> I can remember going to Florida on my senior trip and this was, um, we went to Disney and we um, would go to uh, the different theme parks and everybody was like, okay, well, like, who are you going with today? Because like, we want to hang out with you and you know, we know you ride everything. <laughs> so it was like, let's, let's, all right, who gets Arthur? Who's going with Arthur today? And it was like, okay, well, we can split up and, you know, I'll meet up with you guys later. And so it was all just a, um, you know, it, it was great. I had a good experience in um, in high school who I'm still friends with a, a few uh, people today I'm really close with and um, just grateful for for them and the way that they did accept me. Um, and of course you had your, you know, the people that weren't a part of my close friends group that, that you know, they did laugh or, or things like that that I, I did come up against uh, sometimes, but Thankfully, it wasn't too often, but uh, the isolation part of it where, you know, it's like nobody can really relate to what you're, what you're dealing with, what you're going through. I, uh, yeah, I definitely can, <laughs> can relate to that as well. And even, um, as you mentioned, even now, uh, going through uh, what we all have been through with the pandemic and just, um, yeah. you know, having to be in the house and all of that. Wonderful. And things are adding your own personal experience onto that. Yeah. What's interesting in the difference in how you're treated is different when, so like for, for you, you were using a wheelchair growing up in childhood education, right? Elementary, middle high, or when did you start using a wheelchair? I started using a chair in middle school because okay. 
And it was really because of um, the, the school I went to was, was very large. There were like a couple hundred kids mm -hmm. in the school. And while I'm great on my crutches when nobody's around, <laughs> if I were to get bumped, you know, not on purpose, yeah. but, mm -hmm. uh, or just if the, the tile floor in the school was wet or if somebody kicked my crutch, like I'm yep. going down, no, there's no, yeah. you're going down, <laughs> I'm going down. There's, <laughs> there's no stopping it. Um, right. You know, it's yeah. just happening. So the wheelchair uh, at first was more of a, a safety thing for me, uh, just to, to remain, you know, make sure that I remain safe. And I use it, um, I use it for long distances now. If I'm just going to somebody's house, um, you know, I'll walk, uh, you know, I'll walk into their house and things like that. But if I'm at the mall or if we're going out to the park or, um, okay. you know, at a restaurant, I use it most of the time because my chair is more comfortable than, um, a restaurant chair. <laughs> so, sure. uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll do that. Um, but yeah, I still, I still use my crutches as much as possible. I have, um, I have like five steps to get into my apartment. So, um, you know, so I have to use that and to, uh, you know, if I, to walk at all, okay. I have to use my braces. So, um, okay. yeah. Well, so, yeah, thanks. The reason I was asking is because, mm -hmm. so for you, you had assistive devices that you were using starting right. out as an early age, mm -hmm. um, crutches, wheelchairs, whatnot. And so I think people became comfortable and, and maybe this is just my assumption, but I think people in your community and in your network became comfortable with the idea that they would see that and associate that with you. Right. Versus for me growing up, I didn't start using assistive devices until I started using leg braces when I was in a sophomore in college, but those mm -hmm. weren't really noticeable. I didn't start using a scooter and a wheelchair until after college. So when I was right. 20, 22, 23. And so it's, what's interesting is I just don't think people know how to react, respond, or adjust their stance or their behavior or how far away they are from you if you have a gate. Mm -hmm. And so that was with that was me, right? So I was walking with a gate and you know I'd kind of waddle from side to side. And so people would naturally avoid me to like move out of my way. Um, but if they didn't know me, um, they would walk too close next to me and they would bump into me not on purpose accidentally. Right. And then it was just a domino effect. Like I was down mm -hmm. and then getting back up, depending on where I was in my progression in high school, I could get up and, and just right outside of college, I could get up on my own. But, um, in the last five years, it, it was not being able to get up at all. Um, once I went down. So I don't know how we train the non-disabled community to help people with disabilities and the different types of ambulation and range of motion and walking ability that they have. I, I think it would just be helpful um, to do some of that training so that, you know, don't treat me any differently, but just know that you know, give me a little bit more space than you right. would a regular person. Yeah. My personal space extends a little further than your <laughs> average person. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I had, we had this conversation, um, I had this conversation a few nights ago 
in um, a room that I was in on Clubhouse and we were talking about the term inspiration porn, where, um, which is the idea that people with disabilities are inspiring just because yep. they have disabilities. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that was, it was a good conversation. And um, my, my thought behind it, which I, I shared in the room was, um, first, I think people say, you know, they're, they're inclined to say, oh, you're inspiring when they see somebody with a disability, just because they feel like they have to say something catchy, instead of just saying hello, <laughs> as if they would mm -hmm. to someone else, they feel like they have to add something extra onto it. Um, and so, you know, not that the, they don't, I, I don't feel that most people mean any harm by it. Um, and then it goes back to, um, similarly to what you were just saying, people don't know how to respond to seeing someone with a disability because, and I use the example for myself, I use my wheelchair and I'll go into uh, the grocery store to go food shopping. I'm the only person in the store in a wheelchair. Oh yeah, same. And so, time. yeah, so it's like, I don't see anybody who looks like me in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm saying like putting like myself never. in. Yeah, exactly. I think I can, can count one person in my, in the history of my grocery shopping since I've been alive has been like maybe one person. Right. And, and what was funny is like, it always seems to be like a common theme in the wheelchair community that when you see another person in a wheelchair, you like have to gravitate towards them and like say hello. And then yes. ask what type of wheelchair that they have. Yes. Why is that always the case? <laughs> it's so true though. It's so true. Happens every time. <laughs> And the, the thing is, I, I think that, you know, because I, I think about it, if I go to the store every two weeks, every three weeks or whatever, and I never see somebody in a wheelchair, these other shoppers have most likely never run into somebody in a wheelchair in a store either. So oh, to them, so, true. so to them, it does look inspiring <laughs> that somebody in a wheelchair is out food shopping. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I never thought about that that until you just said that but wow that must be so true yeah I'm because like, for me i like zoom at a thousand miles an hour in the wheelchair right and do you know how many non-disabled people will say you're gonna get a speeding ticket yeah slow I'm down like, in that thing yeah <laughs> like what but it, it's really you know it's really interesting and i i did like i said i shared that in this clubhouse room and so many people had the same reaction that you just had, like, whoa, oh my goodness. like, I never thought about that where, you know, maybe it is inspiring to them because they don't see people with disabilities. And it's, mm -hmm. it, you know, it goes back to what you were saying, having a, a some way to educate people about the different, um, the different ways that people are, um, you know, moving the mobility issues that people have and the gates that they may have and, and just like, like you said, extending that personal space beyond, you know, the normal uh, place that you would have if, if somebody didn't show uh, signs of having a disability. But it's just, um, I, I don't know why it is, but I, I go out a lot. I go, well, not anymore recently, but I go to concerts, I go to sporting events, and it's the same thing. You're out in a, in a, a venue with 20,000 people at a concert, and I'm sitting in the accessible seating section by myself. Yep. <laughs> and <it's> well, <laughs> the benefit 
to that, I will oh, say, because I'm very much like a concert goer and like oh, I love yeah. going out and doing events, non-COVID, right? I've been in yes. my house for a year. Right. Um, but the stages, the accessible stages that they have, sometimes if they're really great, they're right in the front and right. you have this entire section to yourself. That's like a good 20 feet wide yes. and you can space. just roam around and zoom and twirl and all kinds of stuff all the space to do all the things it's just so much it is it's yeah. so much fun but I, it is I, so much fun there's this I, music venue in atlanta that uh -huh. um, their accessible seating area is right at the front in the corner and i would go to concerts like every week um because it's just a local um a local concert stage and mm -hmm. the entire venue is totally packed in and it's just me and this giant space. And so many people will be like, hey, can I come in there with you? And I'm like, no, it's mine. Right, right. this is my space. This is my privilege. Get your own. This is my space. <laughs> but I, I think it, it it's a um I think it's a good conversation to have because mm -hmm. people don't know how to interact with those who have disabilities because they don't see people with disabilities out doing things too much for, um, you know, and it's, it's a shame. Um, and I, I think it has a lot to do with the lack of accessibility that exists. So people with disabilities are not inclined to go to concerts because they don't feel that it might be accessible for them. Um, and the, the difficulty that they may run into the hassles that they may have to face. It's like, no, I'll just stay home. Like, I don't want to deal with that. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people with disabilities are dealing with uh, everyday kind of things. And it's just like, I do not need to add one more thing of how am I going to get into this concert venue and, and my seat and all that kind of stuff. So it's, um, you know, I, th yeah. I think there's definitely a lot of work, uh, a lot of work that has to be done about bringing awareness to these types of things and educating and um, which actually is a great segue into <laughs> uh, what you mentioned when you introduced yourself, saying that you were an advocate, so that you mm -hmm. um, advocate and you work in the area of um, improving things for those who have disabilities. Can you tell us more about the advocacy work that you do there um, in Atlanta? Yeah, so a lot of it comes back to the point that you just made about People with disability, you don't see people out, uh, you don't see people with disabilities, at least let's say visible disabilities right. out in public, um, like wheelchair users and crutches and canes and, and walkers and, and stuff like that. Um, you don't see them out in the community as often because there's such a lack of transparency in the built environment mm -hmm. in terms of accessibility in the parking, in the entrance, in the interior. And how far away is the bathroom from when you enter? So for me, I have been through different stages uh, physically from being able to run and, and do sports activity to not being able to run, to walking, to not being able to walk um, all the way to using a wheelchair and not being able to walk at all, not be able to stand at all on my own. And with that, I know very much about distance and balance and having those cyclic repetitive thoughts in your head that are just so invasive and intrusive of how many steps is there crux? How are the people? How many people do they know who I am? Are they going to mm -hmm. bump into me? What happens if I fall? Who's going to pick me up? 
Um, am I able to, you're just like thinking about every little thing over and over again. It's very exhausting. And so with that, it's just, there's such a lack of transparency. And so what I try to do, and I work with a, a local organization called I Access Life um, as like a, a volunteer and an advocate with them. It's like a, an application, a mobile app that rates and reviews places on transparency in the built environment. So it's like the Yelp for disability ratings. Oh, that's and great. that is really empowering at least a lot of the Atlanta area and a lot of cities around the Southeast to be more transparent so that we can empower and encourage people with disabilities, especially those physical ones where you have these thoughts in your mind all the time about access and whether or not it is accessible or not to make it a little bit easier for them and to also just kind of wither away those worries. Mm -hmm. And additionally, what's helpful is to just be really active in your community and on social media, gathering a network of local advocacy orgs and start tweeting and raising awareness about accessibility and why it's important. So for me, I, I focus heavily on transit equity and with transit equity, we're talking about um, rollability of our sidewalks to get to the bus and also to get to the train. And so a lot of that is partnering with um, our Department of Transportation and local city government and also our local um, bicycle advocacy networks and other transit advocates as well. And going in and, and talking about the disability narrative and saying, how that in, is so intertwined and connected into improving and creating better infrastructure for sidewalks and transit so that individuals with disabilities are able to go out and do the things that they want to do. A lot of people with disabilities are on like Medicare or Medicaid. And um, I, I personally am not, but uh, as far as I know, those options, they only will provide transportation to your doctor's office and then to the nearest grocery store of, uh, from your house. And so there's a huge gap that we're facing in our country, especially in the United States, is the leisure activities that dis people with disabilities, and especially those uh, physical ones that are visible is that they want to go out and do things like they want to go to concerts and, mm -hmm. and music festivals and um, go to sports events and be safe right when when COVID kind of ends yes but the problem is we don't have good infrastructure in our cities across America to provide equal access to transportation uh, especially in the rideshare as well. So yes. here in Atlanta, we have deregulated our taxis and rideshares. So that means we have zero accessible rideshare because there's no regulation around it because our state deregulated it. So the problem with that is I can't just call an Uber and say, come pick me up and take me to a bar a mile away or take me to the concert a mile away. I have to roll two blocks to go to the train get on the train, go a few stops, and then roll on broken sidewalks to the concert venue. Right. And 
likely those sidewalks are inaccessible. They are lacking curb cuts, they're crumbled. And so I'm rolling in the streets of Atlanta and it's very unsafe. Right. And so tying it all back to those uh, transit organizations, especially the bicycle orgs, is that they're huge advocates for safe streets, rollable streets, and bike lanes. And guess what? Wheelchairs can roll in the bike lanes too, which is what I do a lot (laughs) in the few bike lanes that we have in Atlanta. So that's why it's so important to get connected with other organizations that use wheels like bicycles and um, get on their platform, start talking on their webinars and provide that narrative for the disability community because we all want the same thing at the end of the day. Yes. And that is so great. The work that you're doing, it's so necessary and it's, um, it's so important. I, I, it's been six years, I think, since I've been to Atlanta, I have relatives that live there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like, I love, I love a city. I'm 10 minutes outside of Philadelphia. I'm like two hours outside of New York city. I love going to the city. It's such a great, you know, great experience. And Atlanta was a lot of fun. And I remember um, when I was there, I went to the, um, I went to the aquarium there, which was fantastic. Oh, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. And, volunteer there back in the yeah. day. And the one thing, the one thing I can say about the aquarium that I love, they had these little spaces at the tanks where you could roll up and they had like a wheelchair symbol for it was yep. reserved for wheelchair users to get an up close view of the mm-hmm. of the aquarium tank. So I I love that um, that feature, but the work that you're doing, especially with the um, with the app to show that the uh, transparency and the the things that people are doing to um, you know if, if their places are accessible and and what they're doing to to make them accessible, I think is a really great. Um, great thing that needs to be rolled out to everybody everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing some other apps that are in, of the same, in the same competitive space mm-hmm. that are coming out. I know there's one in Europe that's uh, heavily used over there. Um, and there's a few others here in the United States that popped up over the past few years, but uh, it's just, it's really needed. Um, I try to post both on iAccess and Yelp because Yelp is what, so many people use right and i access is still growing its uh, membership and its place in the market space mm-hmm. so um, but yeah two of my really great friends uh created the app and so i, I just helped to i'm like a brand ambassador i just help to bring awareness to it and i don't get paid for it i just i'm really passionate about transparency right. in the built environment and transit equity and the only way to do that is to break down those barriers and talk about it and rate places and give your experience so that next time that you go to the restaurant on Broad Street, you know, the the pizza place that the wheelchair access is in the back through the kitchen around the corner and and then through the side. Right. (laughs) So don't be alarmed by this few steps that you see on the front. Right. Go through the back, you know, it is accessible. You just have to, you know, search for it, but to make those, to make people aware of that type of thing is very important. Um, Mm. You know, we can address why the entrance is where it is another time, (laughs) but at yeah, that's a whole another conversation right. that I'm trying to get Atlanta local city government to change. 
Right. At least they have one. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, So California city of San Francisco has an accessible business entrance program. And so they have required all of their public business entrances, their primary entrance to be wheelchair accessible. And so it's a long list of criteria and they had to get it um, approved and certified by either an access specialist, which they have in the state of California, or a contractor who is familiar with ADA requirements and whatnot. That's so, fantastic. That's a great start. Um, I believe Dallas or maybe Austin also adopted a similar legislation. And so I'm trying to add it as well in the state of Atlanta getting some pushback. It's difficult right now because of COVID, right? Right. Businesses uh, are in debt and are really struggling. Yeah. But I hope to get that in the next few years, at least, because it's so critical. But then it's, it's a thing of you would, you would hope or like to think that something like that could be covered by, you know, some state money or federal money or something. Um, so that the businesses don't have to do it themselves because it's, and it's, it's not just for the benefit of people with physical disabilities with mobility aids. It's a benefit for everybody. It's great. You know, there are some older people who can't walk up steps, you know, that, that still want to come into your restaurant or shop in your store. Uh, But steps are a little difficult for them or just for whatever reason, uh, mothers or parents with strollers for, with babies. It's, um, you know, it benefits so many other people besides those who have uh, disabilities when your entrances are, when your stores or businesses are, are accessible. So you would like to, like I said, you would like to think or hope that um, that uh, that cost wouldn't fall on the business owner themselves, like the township or whoever, the city would be able to cover those costs, um, even though, you know, I, I'm sure it could get very expensive, but uh it's, it's just a benefit. It's a benefit for your communities and, and for everybody. So um, good luck with that. Yeah. And I'll definitely be uh, keeping an eye out for, uh, for your progress on that. That sounds like a great idea. And uh, thank you. Definitely something that needs to happen, uh, you know, nationwide and worldwide, even while we're at it. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I think with the city of San Francisco, what they found is most places had an accessible entrance at least um, it was flat and didn't have stairs to go into it um, aside from the hilly parts of San Francisco. Right. But um, most of it is just adjusting door ten- adjusting door tensions and replacing the door handles. Um, mm-hmm. Not a lot of places. Uh, it's typically not a huge ask or lift uh, by a number of people. Um, and then a temporary ramp is really inexpensive right. uh, for, for the most part. Yeah. Um, so it's at least from what I've seen, it's not, they're not, we're not asking businesses to invest, you know, $20,000 in redoing unless, unless you do have serious infrastructure barriers. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I hope that we can pass that. It would be really awesome. And then also to your point about really benefits everyone that's so critical and, and so true because you have to think about situational, temporary, and permanent disabilities as well. Yes. And so like if a situational, that could be um, you are leaving a bar and you're intoxicated and kind of drunk and stairs are definitely not in your favor. 
you're probably going to trip on those stairs going down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it would be helpful if, a, if there was a smooth and flat ramp entrance. Yeah. Um, temporary, you know, you break your leg. Now you're using crutches or you're using one of those little wheelie things mm -hmm. for your knee to elevate. <laughs> right. And then permanent, you know, people who use wheelchairs, walkers, canes um, on a regular basis. So you are benefiting everyone. Yeah. And, and the thing is that people, people can, you can become disabled at any time Yep. for any, for any reason, for multiple reasons. Um, you know, so, so that's the other thing. It, it just, and I think people really um, pay attention to those types of things when they can relate to those types of things. If they have somebody in their life who has been affected by it. Um, I know for myself, I have friends uh, who I've known a long time, they'll send me, you know, pictures when they go travel and, and they're just oh, like, would cool. you believe this sidewalk doesn't have a curb cut out? Like, oh my gosh, oh, like, I love that. <laughs> you know, like, I don't believe this. Like, who do I talk to about this? Like, this is crazy. That's when you know you have a strong following and a great network yes. of allies. Yes. So I love just, that. Yeah. So I, I get those. I get all it on the time. Twitter and it's so wonderful, right? Yeah, when, you, it is. when you have your non-disabled community and friends. Like, who do we talk to about this? Because this is I crazy. Know, right? <laughs> no curb cut like, out here. Talk like, to 311 or, right. <laughs> you know, go here, go there. Yeah, yeah I, so. I love I love when people send me things uh, mm -hmm. that are inaccessible and they're like, how can I fix this? You know, part of uh, doing this podcast, I always say, is uh, my mission is to educate, raise awareness and change the tone of conversation. And I was so happy when we connected that I saw that you also had a podcast and it's free wheeling with Carden. Yes. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and I'd love your, um, I meant to say this earlier. I love um, your, um, I guess your tagline of living life at six miles per hour. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's so great. I am, I'm always rolling as fast as I can when I can. <laughs> so it's so funny. I know like I live above a Whole Foods and I basically know all the Whole Foods workers because I'm in there like three days a week all just right. to get like <laughs> here. Like, I usually get like one or two things when I go into Whole Foods. So they know all of me and they know that I just zip in there at a thousand miles an hour and <laughs> they're like, Carden, you're back. You need to slow down. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm not going to run over people. Right. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah. So, can, so can you tell us about your, um, about your podcast, um, mm -hmm. how you started it, what kind of topics do you cover on your podcast? And, and uh, last but not least, can you tell us where we can listen to your podcast? Thank you. My yeah. podcast, Freewheeling with Carden, is on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, um, iHeartRadio, really any place that you listen to your podcast. And it shares stories of people with disabilities similar to our view. And we help to break down barriers in the bills environment and the digital environment. And we just, we talk about stereotypes and stigmas, shine a light on people's stories. Cause you know, people have a story and they want to tell it and they want to share how it impacts them. And then I like to focus a lot on 
corporate accommodations Mm -hmm. and things to make things better. So um, things like workplace accommodations, hiring inclusively, uh, event accommodations, um, and kind of asking people in your, for the type of disability that you have, what would be beneficial for you? How can other people help you? Um, Because I think the other narrative is that a lot of times people with disabilities don't like asking for help. And mm-hmm. so the problem with that is that it's, it has a negative impact on people who are not disabled, who are event planners, who are um, high up the food chain in corporations, and they don't know how to structure policy and provide accommodations when no one tells you what they need to put in those accommodations. Right. And not a lot, a lot of times people um, with disabilities don't know how to ask for specific things that they um, need for help. So I try to provide some transparency in that. So whoever's listening um, can think about creating accessible things if it's events or, or, or inside the workplace and why it's helpful for them. And I post episodes weekly and yeah, that, that's freewheeling. That's oh, and uh, freewheeling was Carden started in March of 2020. So a year ago, I actually was planning to launch it without knowing that COVID was hitting. And um, <laughs> I took a podcasting course through a coworkers press play podcast podcasting course. It's kind of a handful of press play (laughs) podcast podcasting course. And that's how I learned how to record, get the microphone, get the recording applications and launch a podcast within eight weeks. So it was really awesome. Yeah, that's great. I, um, I have listened to a few of your episodes to really, um, really good. And it's great conversation. And I love that, uh, you know, the breaking down of the stereotypes and just, um, I, I think just having conversations is a great place to start. It's, you know, that's how we learn and how we uh, educate ourselves about what, you know, what real challenges that people with disabilities face and how we can all work together. Everybody has something in them that they can contribute to, to help, um, you know, to help with these issues that, that are facing people with disabilities. And so to, um, to have a podcast like yours, where you do address, uh, you know, great topics and have uh, guests on to uh, talk about different things that they're creating and different things that they're a part of to um, help uh, better the lives of those who have disabilities and just everybody in general, I think is, um, you know, it's always a a good thing to, um, share these, uh, these types of podcasts with people. So thank you for uh, talking about that. Yeah, thanks. And I, the guests that I interview are people with disabilities, people who are allies of people with disabilities. So like inventors and have interviewed caretakers. So I kind of try to approach it through all the, all different avenues of people that touch the lives of people with disabilities, because it's not just the focus is on people with disabilities, but um, the ally network is so critical for making that change and for getting things creating done. a better world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I listened uh, earlier today, I listened to your episode with the gentleman, I forget his name that had the, uh, ASL, um, app that, uh, 
Yeah, I'm that here. Was, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that was really. Uh, we hear really, you. Yes, we hear you, ASL. That was, <laughs> that was really, um, that was really great. And like you said, it's about the allyship of it, yeah. of bringing in everybody to be a part of this conversation and mm-hmm. to uh, assist with making these changes. So it's, uh, you know, really great work again that you're doing. And uh, thank you for that. And just uh, keep up everything that you're doing. It's really, you know, really exciting to see. Uh, to see people working so hard to make changes that need to be done that are way overdue to be done, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, um, you know, it's, it's like we have this, this uh, world, this space that we're living in, and it's like we have to continue to uh, help and figure out ways to make it better for, you know, for everybody to live. So, um, thank you, know, the you work- Arthur, and thank yeah. you for your leadership and just all the work that you're doing to continue to promote the narrative of creating a more accessible and inclusive world for disabilities. So, yeah. um, find us on Clubhouse. Yes. What's your What's your Clubhouse? Um, <laughs> I'm, at I'm, at, I'm at our view for uh, on Clubhouse. At our view on yes. Clubhouse, and I'm at Carden of Milk. I should probably change it to Free Will and McCarden, but. Cardinal Milk is my Instagram and my Twitter handle. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah. So it, it's been really great to um, connect. Again, it's been really great to connect with people on Clubhouse to just share our stories and our experiences and just um, knowing that people, it, it goes back to what you said before um, about the isolation and feeling isolated, mm-hmm. but to be able to connect, it's, Clubhouse is, it's very different than the other social media networks where you have to type out your responses that they have walls and you can post on somebody's timeline and that kind of thing. But to be able to actually use your voice and to, um, to hear the passion that people have in the work that they're doing is really inspiring. That's really inspiring because you can Mm -hmm. really tell that people mean and they stand behind the stuff that they're doing and uh, to be able to connect with a great network of people on that app over the last few months has been really great um, and has really, like, um, again, inspired me and really just put a, lit a fire in me to, like, keep going and to keep doing uh, the work that I'm doing and keep putting out stories like like yours and others that I have interviewed on, on the podcast just to um, let people know that we're out here and we're doing cool, fun things and we're- Heck yeah. Yeah. And we're working hard to, we're working hard to make changes. So, right. And, and there's space and, for everybody and like, come on and join us. And uh, even mm-hmm. if you don't have a disability, like, you know, like Cardin said, we need these allies. We need our, our friends, our family, our network of people uh, outside yeah. of the disability community to join us in this and, uh, you know, bring it to it to people's attention when things aren't accessible. You know, there's, always more work to do. So there, there mm-hmm. is the definite need for uh, people like yourself and, and myself to uh, continue uh, doing that, that work. So um, again, thank you for, for that. And um, to wrap up the episode, I would just um, like to end with this uh, last question. And that is, what is the most common misconception about your disability diagnosis? Or uh, you can address it as um, you know, a misconception that people have about people with disabilities in general. I think the most common misconception for my type of muscular dystrophy 
is the lack of strong facial muscles. And so things like smiling and uh, being able to just look animated is difficult. And so I'm not here with like a resting bad face mm-hmm. and I'm not here. And, and I'm, I'm, I try to not look unexcited, but mm-hmm. you know, when my face can only move so far and make as only as big of expressions as it can. Um, I think I get a lot of like when I, when strangers are taking my picture and I'm smiling as big as I can, they're like, come on now, smile. You can smile, open up your mouth. And it's like, yeah, it does. Yeah. I can't do that. So, and it sometimes gets old, um, having to explain that. Uh, but I think, uh, you just have to continue to spread that awareness and hope for a cure, which is coming in the next five years or so to help stop that progression. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, um, really great thing to, to mention because it's, um, you know, you, you don't, again, like we talked about when we first started, when you hear of, of muscular dystrophy, you have, you know, you may have a certain image in your mind of what that looks like based off of the old school, um, you know, the telethons they used to do back in the eighties and and nineties. And I think they're still doing them some in some form today. Um, and that's not always what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and your specific type that you have is, you know, something, something different. And so it's just, um, again, extending the kindness to everybody, which is, um, you know, just, just being kind to everybody. Cause you never know what kind of, uh, you know, struggles they're facing in, in life and, and what, um, you know, what they're able to do. So I, I think that's, um, yeah. You know, I think that's a very thing, a very good thing to, uh, to mention. So thanks for that. I appreciate it. I think the other thing with this type of muscular dystrophy is that it's it's so slow to progress over time. So Mm -hmm. for those that knew me in elementary and medical, middle school, and even high school, you know, I didn't use a wheelchair, but after college, I started using a wheelchair. So if I were to go back to my elementary school reunion, a lot of people that I haven't connected with since then would be surprised. And they would probably say, you know, what happened to you? And it's like, well, you know, this was always a part of me. It just, I didn't show symptoms when I was right. that young or at least noticeably um, the physical. So, and a similar narrative for those that um, they can go 40 years of their life and are walking just fine. And then realize that they're starting to see some weakness in their body and mm-hmm. lifting heavy things and no longer being able to walk very well. So that's another thing is that this disease shows up so differently for every single individual. And like I said, I only about 10% show it um, in early infantile onset, but most of this is an adult onset later in life. So you could go 40 years, 30 years looking quote normal and being able to walk and play sports. But after that, it's, um, so we see a lot of people that get diagnosed mid middle age. Mm-hmm. And they're, and they're surprised and they're like, right. oh, I had no idea that I had this. Yeah, that's, um, I think, and that's the, um, again, it, it goes back to 
the how everything is unique and it's it can be different and look different and the diagnosis can come at a different time for everybody so it's um and again goes back to what we've been saying of the importance of educating about uh different types of disabilities and what they actually mean because you hear these terms you hear these phrases but you don't know exactly what it you know what it means and what the impact is and what the effect uh that these diagnoses have on someone's uh someone's life and and as you said it affects you know your muscles and 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 all of that so it really just um you know again sharing your story like this and and other places that we are um able to have a platform to share our stories and uh share our posts on social media and and share uh you know, the information that people don't have, uh, well, everybody has access to it because there is Google, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but they wouldn't otherwise just voluntarily look it up and research it for themselves. So to, um, to use our uh, platforms to raise awareness about these types of uh, disabilities and diagnosis, I think is uh, very, very much needed and very important. Yeah, thank you, Arthur. I really appreciate our time and our conversation. Yes, me too. I really did. And I will, um, I'll definitely hopefully catch you on Clubhouse sometime soon. You know, if there's anything that I can uh, help you out with, uh, just let me know and I will. Okay, um, will do. And you have uh, a good rest of your evening. You too. Bye. All right. Thank Clubhouse. you. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Our View podcast. Leave us a review wherever you listen and let us know what you liked about this episode. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to follow us on all social media platforms for more disability-related content at Our View for Life. That's O-U-R-V-I-E-W, the number four, L-I-F-E. If you listen to this episode on your phone, take a screenshot and post it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and be sure to tag us. We thank you for listening and take care.